This is just my favorite dinosaur GIF. <laughs> it's not very scientifically accurate, but you know, it's, you know, I think, I mean, one of the best things I feel like whenever, you know, uh, you know, when you're interacting with people on Twitter, like there's so many good dinosaur GIFs. And that brings me to another thing too. It's, again, as a podcast that started out as, you know, just liking a movie, but extending to a love of dinosaurs, I, I feel so lucky that there are so many paleontologists on Twitter, like Dr. Shana, where you can follow them and then kind of fill your feed with like actual good scientific fact instead of just like following clickbaity headlines or things like that. And then it, when people want to learn, it's like, oh my gosh, these paleontologists are so accessible. I can just tweet at them, you know, again, like, hey, what's this bone? Like you were saying, or like, you know, hey, did you read this article? You know, it's, it, it's really cool right now that through social media and through these forums, we're able to actually get right to the source. Welcome to See Jurassic Right. I'm your host, Stephen Ray Morris, and my nose is a little stuffy, but we're back for another mini-sode. Quick little turnaround on mini-sodes this month. I'm still catching up with new episodes and everything, so again, thanks for your patience. It's been fun. I've been, I mean, it feels like I've been doing a lot, but again, it's, the schedule's been so wonky and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I hope you're, I hope everyone has at least been enjoying it when they've been seeing these new episodes drop in your feed. Uh, it's been a big, September was a big month. I'm very surprised. It, I didn't expect it to be. And now we're going into October, spooky Halloween time. And yeah, it's, it's, I mean, <laughs> We've already talked about a lot of the big news already, so but I felt like this I I should still keep the mini sode, you know, for the end of September because there was some other cool stuff that I did after all the big news. But just to recap it, we obviously had our battle at Big Rock reactions. Uh Brennan White, aka Beaksels, aka Bonnie Puns and I uh talked about what we thought of Battle at Big Rock, seeing it uh at her family's house in Salt Lake City. And then getting to see it on the big screen. Uh, <laughs> uh, obviously, Miniso 24, where I talked about season two's delay till next year. If you want to hear the original OG version, go back and listen to that. But essentially, I want more time. I need more time. And I think it's going to be better all around. So stick around for that. It'll be more special, too, I think. So instead of season two being spread out over the course of months, it's going to all come out in one 15 episode every week chunk uh, sometime at the beginning of next year. And I think that'll just make it more unique, more special, more fun, more Jurassic, all that good stuff. So that's in Miniso 24. And I read your uh, reactions or, or your thoughts about what films beyond Jurassic World 3 might look like. And that was really fun. So go back and listen to Miniso 24, Thrill Intention of it all for that one. And I, I don't know if I mentioned, but Rea Raptor Reactions 13 was Brenna and I's Battle at Big Rock Thoughts. And then Raptor Reactions 14 was the Collider, uh, the Collider screening of Jurassic World and Battle at Big Rock, plus the, the, uh, announcement, uh, about, uh, Laura Dern, Sam Neill, and Jeff Goldblum returning for Jurassic World 3. 
And of course, that big news being that it's going to be, at least for Laura Dern, a major role, not a cameo, which was Colin's specific words. So uh, Chris Bermonte and Brenna and I reacted after the screening, and then Brenna and I dove in some more... Um, you know, to kind of give our thoughts and our reactions. So, uh, you know, it was just such an exciting night and there was so many, so many people there from the community and friends. And it just was such a great experience. Courtney James Clark was there too. So, uh, listen to our reactions of that night and getting to meet Colin Trevorrow, getting to meet Emily Carmichael, getting to meet Amy Doherty. That was really special. And last week, finally put out the Park Experts episode with Jennifer Tarek, who you know from Bryce Dallas Howard Network, from Jurassic Vault. And that was such a fun interview. I'm so glad it finally came out. I think I recorded it in July. And I really apologize to all my guests who, who've been kind of probably waiting for their episodes to drop. Uh, but all of them are coming very soon. So it's just, there's just been so much news, you know, and a couple other obvious announcements that I've been talking about. Um, come run the Jurassic World run with me in November, uh, November 17th at Universal Studios. If you use my code JRPOD10, you'll get $10 off registration, but that doesn't include the, the 1K or, you know, if you're a, if you already have discounts applied to it, but if you don't and you want to come run with me, uh, again, I'm assuming away from dinosaurs, uh, Universal Studios, it's JRPOD10 for $10 off registration. And for anybody in the UK, London area, Tom Jurassic, Tom Fishenden is hosting a meetup Saturday, October 26th at 10 a.m. at the Natural History Museum in London. So I'll put a link to uh, the details for that. But basically, Saturday, October 26th, it's going to be a Natural History Museum hang. I wish I could come. It sounds super fun. Uh, yeah, so those are kind of all the announcements. Again, season two is coming next year, early next year. And yeah, it's all going to be released on a weekly basis. So basically the park experts interviews will be interrupted and then we will go into the highly produced seasons and stuff and or the highly produced season, I should say, uh, with tons of interviews, tons of special things. I just wanted to make it more special and you won't have to wait month to month for it. So you'll just have to wait a couple months longer, a few months longer uh, before it gets started. But um, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's all for the announcements. This is going to be, this is a little, this, I'm anticipating this mini-sode being actually mini for once. Uh, but what you heard up top was a little sn- snippet of my presentation at DinoFest this year at the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles. And later in this episode, you'll get to hear the Q&A that Dr. Shana Montaneri and myself gave uh, because we did our presentation together. She talked about dinosaurs and it was a presentation essentially for dinosaurs and social media. And Dr. Shana really got the nuts and bolts numbers on the way an actual paleontologist interacts with people on Twitter and how the science community engages with dinosaurs on social media and how we, you know, and how non-paleontologists can engage as well. And I just kind of talked about my podcast. I talked about SJR, uh, but our Q and a on Sunday of Dino Fest was super fun. And the audience had so many great questions. So I'm going to share that later in the episode, but for now, let's take a little break and come back with the news. All right, the 
first bit of news, it uh, comes via Collect Jurassic and Jurassic Outpost, Victoria's Cantina. You know where I get all my news from. It's, it's all the, the same great people. But the first bit is that Mattel, uh, we've seen bits and pieces. It's it's so interesting because I don't remember how toys were released when I was a kid. I just assumed that they were all released at once and then maybe a new thing was refreshed at some point later in the year but we're in the world of Jurassic toys all year round now and uh, so basically the next wave of Mattel toys which again it's 2020 but it's but some stuff that's happening earlier yeah it's very confusing for me personally but it's really exciting because we're gonna get some new like you know um, play features and stuff like that. Like there's going to be the, the Carnus Taurus that we really liked when it first came out is going to be back with some new attack, uh, some new attack features. But personally, I'm really excited for a lot of the new dinosaurs. We're going to be getting an Edmontosaurus, which is really awesome. If you don't know what an Edmontosaurus is, it's basically like a Parasaurolophus. It's another duckbill dinosaur and it just looks really rad. And it's exciting to have, um, another duckbill dinosaur in the Jurassic franchise. There's only been Parasaurolophus and Corythosaurus. Uh, so it's interesting that they went with, uh, Edmontosaurus, but. I really love the colors. It's it's blue and and brown and black and yellow. It's it's really interesting. And I'm also really excited for uh, there is the Sauropelta, which is another Ankylosaurid. So besides Ankylosaurus and Eucephalus, Eucephalus, uh, or and Midme, which was a big part of the um, like. I think either earlier this year or late last year was a little tiny ankylosaurid. But this Sarapelta is really cool because it just has these huge spikes and it's red and it looks mean. Um, but it's very small at the same time. So it's very cute as well. Uh, let's see. Oh, also Crylophosaurus. Um, personally, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Crylophosaurus that the Natural History Museum did. But... Uh, in terms of the kind of um, cassowary colors, blues, uh, blacks with a little bit of red. This Crylophosaurus, this is the Antarctic predator, by the way, that's closest relative was the Dilophosaurus. Uh, this Crylophosaurus has kind of more of an orangey yellow color. So it's interesting. Um, I like the Crylophosaurus, uh, so I'm definitely going to get it either way. Even if the colors are like... You know, it, I, I definitely prefer the Antarctic dinosaurs c colors. Uh, what's really cool is that we're getting a Sarcosuchus, which isn't even a dinosaur. It's a uh, ancient croc, I guess is the right word. Uh, no, that's probably not the real scientific uh, explanation, but it looks really badass. So and I think it looks I think that's the Sarcosuchus was the croc that was in the Lost World video game back in the day. So anyway, you can. Uh, uh, pre-order a lot of this stuff off entertainment earth which is a really great website for uh if you can't get your dinosaurs in stores so we'll talk about the brachiosaurus in a minute uh and the and let me know if you're interested in the amber collection personally i haven't been too interested in i really like having all my dinosaurs in the same scale so if you don't know the amber collection it's basically just like six inch figures and six inch dinosaurs or six and a half inch dinosaurs instead of the 3.75 um so basically it's a different scale from the and so far they've only had malcolm and the jurassic park raptor and yeah part of me is just like oh, i've committed so much to this other you know to the main line and so yeah i don't know it's they're they're a little bit more expensive too they're like 20 bucks i think 20 so it's uh, i think the equivalent is like the black series for star wars so uh, personally, I haven't been too interested in 
that line other than they just announced that they're going to do a Nedrian Dilophosaurus. So now, <laughs> even as I'm recording this, I'm like going back and forth like, I don't know which one to choose. They all look so good. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's about where you want to spend your money and I love having all the dinosaurs be the same size together. So it, it just makes one and you get the this uh, this amber collection a little bit more difficult in terms of that. So but let me know, are you are you also making the upgrade of the amber collection as well? Or are you just sticking with the main line? Um, all right. Well, the next bit of news is, uh, is different Jurassic World 3 news. And again, this this uh, this was I forget where it was originally first reported. It was at a convention. But um, uh, Corey Anderson, uh, you know, him, you love him, wrote the article for Jurassic Outpost. Uh, and actually, oh, it was the Empire Film Podcast, as it says here on the Jurassic Outpost. But Colin Trevorrow also said it at the collider screening that I was at. So um, that basically John Nolan is going to head up the animatronics for Jurassic World 3. So obviously we had Stan Winston and Legacy Effects doing, you know, the original Jurassic Park trilogy. Legacy Effects was born out of Stan Winston Studios and, you know, John Rosengrant, who is so instrumental into those, uh, into the... Um, into the animatronics, even in Jurassic World with the Apatosaurus. And then Neil Scanlon took over for Fallen Kingdom. Uh, Neil Scanlon does, uh, did all the Star Wars, the new Star Wars trilogy. Uh, but he is not coming back. And it looks like we're getting John Nolan, who did all of the animatronics and puppets for the Dark Crystal prequel. Uh, that just came out. Now, I haven't seen it personally. I've only seen stills and they look amazing. And it, Corey's article is really interesting. I'll put a link to it, but basically, uh, just it, it, and I think it was something that I think Neil Scanlon has done a lot too, which is nowadays a lot of the animatronics are going to be kind of tightened up by CGI anyway. So it's almost more the idea of what people are realizing. What's what was really cool about the original Jurassic Park was obviously the animatronics were amazing and having those real world interactions were awesome and having those interactions is what was important. I think most people feel or I feel most people uh, I feel like to me, the CGI was a little bit lackluster in Jurassic World. If only just because it wasn't because it didn't have animatronics, but because there was no, you know, feeling and touching. It just felt like everything kind of felt distant and removed. And why I loved Fallen Kingdom is because there were so many scenes of the dinosaurs getting down and dirty with humans, blue surgery, getting the blood from Rexy, uh, all that stuff to me was the stuff that felt really real. And so I think if John Nolan is you know, jumping into the fray for Jurassic World 3 and having these puppets and having these things that, you know, might not necessarily like, you know, physically, their physical like imagery might not end up on the big screen or like it's just more puppets that they're going to film later with CGI. Having those physical interactions with something is better than looking at a tennis ball. So uh, it'd be interesting to see see what happens. And yeah, I mean, it's I find it very interesting that uh, you know, that this new Jurassic trilogy hasn't had a consistent, isn't going to have a consistent uh, animatronics company. It's we had legacy effects for Jurassic World, Neil Scanlon for for Fallen Kingdom. Then we had legacy come back for the Battle of Big Rock short, uh, you know, John Rosengrant's team doing the Allosaurus animatronic in that short film. And then now we're getting John Nolan for Jurassic World 3. And 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it's at this point now, if the CGI company, if ILM is more consistent, even though it's not just ILM, it's like a bunch of little companies too. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just just food for thought. I mean, what do you think? Are are you hoping that we want like the big animatronics of yesteryear like Rexy? Or are you fine with with the CGI augmentation because now at least we're getting tons more puppets, tons more physical interaction. I personally think the CGI in Fallen Kingdom looked great. And I think having those puppets there only made it easier for the visual effects artists to get it right because they had those on set lighting references and things like that. So let me know what you think. Um, what else is in the news? Oh, I want to get to, before I get to the big Jurassic World 3 news, just to reaffirm again, uh, I wanted to say some some dinosaur news. Uh, speaking of ankylosaurids, um, Anderson Cooper, what are you doing on my page? I love you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, so this comes from CNN, and it says, shockingly lifelike dinosaur fossil makes public debut. And this is by Matt Rabin uh, from CNN. And it's all about this notosaur. Speaking of ankylosaurids, it's a notosaur uh, that was 18 feet long. It was built like a tank. And, now, and this is to quote the article. It was 18 feet long and it's built like a tank. Now its mummified remains have emerged from an oil sands mine in Canada. No, it's not the plot line of a summer blockbuster. It's science. Breathtaking. Take your back in time science. And so at the ROM, which I've been to uh, with my friend Stephanie Cook, uh, I, that was I'm like trying to remember what mini said that was two years ago, but, um, yeah, the, the first time I ever went to Toronto, I went to the ROM. So it's one of my favorite naturalist museums in the world. So I'm so excited that they get this, they get this notosaur because what was, what's really important about it is that basically they found it with its guts intact, which is crazy. What makes this notosaur staggering unique isn't its size, but it's almost an unprecedented state of preservation. Considering the notosaur is roughly 110 million years old, the the sleeping giant you see when you... I was like, do I, am I just going to read the article? Yeah. The sleeping giant you see when you look at it's astounding. For one thing, you don't see bones. Most of the skeleton is undetectable because it's covered in fossilized skin. And as the museum describes it, encased in intact body armor. Notosaurs were herbivores who walked on four legs and were covered in take-like armor and dotted with spikes for protection. The notosaur is a new species and genus. It's the oldest known dinosaur from Alberta, which is really interesting. Um, and yeah, it's just like so cool. I, I wish... Oh, I want to go to Toronto and check this out again. Um, but yeah, it's just so... I mean, if you go online and actually like look at the pictures and the video and stuff like that, it's just... I mean, it literally looks like a mummified dinosaur. And I don't think that's correct that it's literally mummified. But, you know, it, the armor helped keep a lot of that stuff intact, which I think is really, really cool. Uh, so yeah, check that out. I'll put a link to the article. Yeah, and as you know, I put a link to all the articles in the notes. So check that out. I wanted to get back on just because I haven't, I feel like I haven't done dinosaur news in a long time. So I wanted to share that. But obviously, the biggest news of today, of this month, was that at the Collider event that I was lucky enough to attend, because I almost didn't attend because I thought I had to go to work and I didn't. So that Laura Dern is, and Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum are all coming back for Jurassic World 3. And to quote Colin Chavaro. Uh, so Laura is, is returning in Jurassic World 3 in a major role and not a cameo. Yeah. Yeah. That 
they will have the mate you know that they will be major roles they're not just going to be cameo well that laura dern will have a major role not a cameo i personally feel like when you listen to the audio for the event like if you listen to the whole interview and i'll provide a link uh because it's now up at collider um that i don't think it's clear that or I don't think it's like 100% guaranteed that that he's also saying Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum will have major roles. But I definitely think that if you lit, roll back the tape, it is for Laura Dern, and as it should. We've already had, uh, I mean, I think it would be so cool. Like, obviously, Claire and uh, Claire and Owen and Macy, it's going to end blue. It's going to be their movie, Jurassic World 3. But how awesome would it be if Laura Dern truly is maybe the central figure of which the plot revolves around or her involvement is kind of the through line that gets these characters all back together for some reason? I don't know. It's so interesting. I feel like I feel like I don't know any like I feel like any of my guesses for what Jurassic World 3 are about are kind of out the window now because you can kind of I can kind of guess what a Jurassic World 3 would look like if those three characters came back in kind of cameo style roles like uh, Jeff Goldblum did for Fallen Kingdom. But if Laura Dern, if if Dr. Ellie Sattler is a central figure, central figure, central character, you know, main character, major role, whatever that means, I feel like it's going to, I just, I can't wrap my head around it. But let me know what you're thinking, what you want. How, how does Ellie get back involved? How does Dr. Sattler get back involved? And how does she drag her friends, friends, uh, her uh, ex-lover, uh, Dr. Grant, and uh, not ex-lover, <laughs> Dr. Malcolm, back into the fray. So let me know what you want out of that. But yeah, I'm so excited. Laura Dern, she deserves to have her own her own movie she, or her own Jurassic Adventure. Uh, I mean, Laura Dern obviously has ha, deserves all the movies, um, and I hope we get more stuff of her, more prequel stuff of her for, as Admiral Holdo, Holdo in Star Wars. So, uh, again, listen to Raptor Reactions 14 to kind of hear the raw thoughts of the evening. Um, but I just wanted to follow up again with this and, and and just kind of ruminate on it again now that it's been a couple of weeks. But let's take another little break because I want to get to this month's question, which is, what did you think of Battle of Big Rock? And and I can kind of talk about the evening again in a little bit more detail. So stay tuned after these commercial messages. Yeah, so the evening, this Collider screening was just way more special. I mean, it was so exciting to see Jurassic World on the big screen. And again, in the Rap Directions 14, I definitely appreciated Jurassic World more, you know, now that we, now that we've seen Fallen Kingdom, now that we've seen Battle at Big Rock, and now that we kind of have an idea of what, of what pieces are going to be in play in Jurassic World 3, if only than the actors. I mean, the fact that we know, Bryce Dallas Howard, Chris Pratt, Blue. <laughs> uh, has, has Isabella Sermon been confirmed and B.D. Wong been confirmed? I mean, we know that they're coming back, but I don't know if there's been an official announcement. And then obviously Laura Dern, Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum coming back. So and then to see like Laura Dern like walked like walked out and just like just came to this little fun little screening that, you know, Stephen Weintraub from Collider put together. 
it's so cool. I mean, big thank you again to Collider and 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 Stephen for doing this because if anything, having this announcement be part of this small thing was so cool. It felt like this is for you guys. Like that's kind of how it felt like for us in the audience. We were there because we wanted to be there because I didn't have to work that night after all. Uh, so I got to be there for that and to get to share it with people. I mean, it just all the, the energy in the room was just electric. Um, uh, because it was announced right at the end of the evening. So we had watched Battle at Big Rock once, then Jurassic World, then Battle at Big Rock again. And then Steven Weintraub did a Q&A with Colin Trevorrow, uh, who directed Jurassic World, wrote Fallen Kingdom in his directing Jurassic World 3, along with Emily Carmichael, who is writing uh, Jurassic World 3, with uh, Colin Trevorrow and who wrote co-wrote Battle at Big Rock as well and Amy Doherty who did the score for Battle at Big Rock so it was really awesome to hear their thoughts and and feelings about doing Battle at Big Rock doing the short and all that stuff and then them kind of getting to tease up and uh, the announcement about Jurassic World 3 and again it was just like so much fun to be there Chris Bermonte Amantiak you know him Courtney James Clark who's the Mosasaur announcer and I'm so excited that she got to reunite with Colin and got to meet Emily Carmichael and all that stuff, as well as my friends Krista, Brian, and Robin. I got to see Jurassic Gen again, Neems, uh, Diana, and I didn't get to say hi to Perry, but she was there, and I got to say hi to her later in an email. So, um, And also get, got to meet uh, JP Informer, uh, Daniel, so it was nice to meet him as well. And also, again, the highlight of getting to meet Colin and Emily and Amy. I'm usually not good with meeting people, and I'm not. And most of the time I don't want it because I'm afraid I'm going to embarrass myself. So, uh, But I was like, F it. Let's just, who cares? Just be genuine and just say thank you, and usually nothing will go wrong. So, uh, yeah, it was such a special evening. And, yeah, I mean, I just, it was, September was just such a month of uh dinosaur awesomeness i mean we yeah battle at big rock jurassic world 3 news and then dino fest but before we jump into the dino fest weekend and the q a that uh that i did with dr shana um i wanted to read your thoughts about battle at big rock because holy shit we got a new short we got new canon material for jurassic park uh and i mean it was just so interesting like so this is this is hot off the presses i'm recording this tonight um if you go to watch battle at big rock now um there's a 4k version of it available on youtube and when you watch it they've changed a few things from my memory and i, I mean i watched it a few times but I, I i mean i'm sure people will be confirming but it seems like that they've it se things seem a little bit different, and these are my first reactions, but it seems like there's kind of a greener tint on the film a little bit. I feel like you can see the details of the dinosaurs more, like because I think we all commented originally it was so dark, and even in the theater it was really dark, but I feel like they brightened them up a little bit. I'm That might just be my imagination, but I'm not sure. Um, and also, yeah, there was just like one or two things that looked like new shots to me. Uh, and that could just be maybe be the 4K, just like changing my perception of things. But what's definitely new is the end credits. 
they haven't changed any of the scenes in the end credits for Battle of Big Rock, like the little girl running from the compies and the Parasaurolophus on the river and the Mosasaur getting the shark and the Paras... Uh, no, I said that already. Uh, <laughs> the Stegosaurus uh, on the on the road. But the, the credits just look more um, professional, I guess. And then they have a longer set of credits for all the visual effects artists and those kind of, you know, kind of below the... Below, I don't mean below the line in my heart. I'm just saying that that's the technical term. Uh, below the line people. And they have like a little acoustic guitar cover of Jurassic Park at the end, which is really cute. So I'll include a link to Battle of Big Rock again in this. And if you watch it in 4K, I'm, maybe you can see it in lower resolutions, but I just only watched it uh, in 4K. So uh, yeah, I love the short. I love it even more. Amy's score is great. The way she incorporates Jurassic Park, Lost World and Jurassic World together is really cool as well as her own themes. And that was one of the big things we learned at the Q&A was that the the credits were inspired because of Amy's score instead of oh hey it's a happy ending and we survived the dinosaurs it's like this is the world at which we live in where these kind of encounters are going to be happening uh, although this is the first encounter supposedly um, because the short takes place a year after Fallen Kingdom and this family's camping and Allosaurus and Isutoceratops and finally that battle at Big Rock is rocking anyway you get it but yeah, what did you all think? Uh, I'm going to read it to you right now. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just going off the thread, the spoiler thread that we that we started uh, when the short first came out in the beginning of September, or the middle of September. Uh, ya boy Jurassic. Hmm, need to talk to someone about those music choices. And then Zalma is like, right? Um, and then Matthew says, I was worried a 10 minute short might not be worth the wait. Boy, it was definitely worth it. Uh, and Brenda says, love those credits. Uh, Grayson, who is a super great guy, uh, paleontologist himself. I like his reaction and the conversation that he has with Zelma and a few. Yeah, no, it's just him and Zelma. Um, he says it's disappointing and anticlimactic to say the least hands down the worst film in this franchise. Why they waste time and money to do this? Uh, and I responded, you know, it's, I don't think it's necessary. I, I, I get it where it's like, it's, you know, when you're in the community, when you're excited about stuff, you know, it's, it's, you know, you want everything to feel like an event, you know, it's almost like, I can't imagine how Star Wars fans was, I mean, you know, I'm a huge Star Wars fan as well, but imagine if we had the same amount of content coming out in terms of, I think the road to the rise of Skywalker has like 10 books, 10 comics, a video game. Like it has all this stuff. And so I feel like they're probably, I feel like more hardcore Star Wars fans are probably more mature in the sense that it's like mature. And when I say mature, I just mean in the sense that like they can't all be winners and you know, you just sort of have to pick and choose. But as Jurassic Park fans, it's like, we're so starved for anything. And so I can totally understand why Grayson was disappointed by it, you know, but I also think that, you know, it's uh, an eight minute short film is not supposed to compete with a, with a, with a two hour movie. I just think that's kind of an unfair comparison, but I also understand the disappointment of we're waiting for this thing. And it's like, you know, so, uh, as Zelma chimes in, she says, I definitely get this. I might've missed the hype machine, but I still saw people getting excited for it. Um, I felt the plot was phoned in. I've seen, 
well acted and produced shorts. There's a skill to world building, conveying important story elements in short form. And this wasn't bad, but it did feel like the scenes from Jurassic World of Grey just starts randomly crying because of his parents divorced. Divorce, weirdly scripted, awkwardly acted, and ultimately kind of irrelevant. I appreciate what they're trying to get at, though. The ideas of the snapshot of everyday life of a family during the time of transition. It humanizes the story, gives the audience a point of reference, and allows for a badass moment with a crossbow. And most importantly, it sets the stage for what human and dinosaur interactions are like in this new world. Thinking of going of camping? Think again. I do think the CG was great on my tiny self on screen and hope there are a series of these kinds of shorts, though probably more in line with credits. I'm a rare fan of the found footage genre. No, I love what you said, Zama. I definitely... It It's... You know, it's a very simple setup, and I think having that of a frame of mind, it's merely, like you said, it's merely kind of meant to be just a little snapshot. And maybe if it was done in a found footage style, maybe it would feel less hype, maybe, in that way, uh, you know, to address your thoughts, Grace. And maybe it, you know, it, it, it is about, I mean, it's interesting because this was supposed to be, this was supposed Battle Epic Rock was supposed to go up before Hobbs and Shaw, but I personally like that it went up on TV, even though I had to like, you know, uh, you know, we, Brenna and I had to run around Salt Lake to find a place to watch it, but I, I like that it came out online and we could all kind of digest it together because I feel like not everyone would see it if it was in front of Hobbs and Shaw. I mean, I, I probably would have only seen it because of doing this podcast and because I'm a Jurassic Park fan, I don't know if I would have seen it if I'm not, you know, not that hardcore, quote unquote, or whatever. So I, I'm glad that it was kind of, you know, and it was immediately available online after it aired. So I, I kind of prefer this kind of egalitarian type of thing where we could all kind of share it and really talk about it together versus everyone having to wait to see it. You know, oh, I saw I saw Hobbs and Sean Friday and then I saw it on Saturday, you know, oh, two weeks from now, I still haven't seen Hobbs and Sean. I'm just going to wait till it's on DVD, you know, or whatever. So anyway, uh, but no, I I. I can see all sides of it, you know, in, in terms of the hype and, and how that can help or hinder, uh, your expectations. So, um, Dusty says, ah, I'm the eight year old, uh, she's smart and tough. Uh, Renee says the credit clips are my favorite. Uh, Marissa says, dude, that was some old school Jurassic vibes. I friggin' loved it. It was scary and cool. Ah, I love it. Uh, Zelma follows up with her missing the boat on the hype train. Uh, I totally missed the boat on this one. So I had absolutely no context for this short, which is so interesting. I, I feel like, I feel like, especially for people who had been following it, it, it was that sense of like, why are they dragging their feet on this? It's just a short film. So, um, I was su- pleasantly surprised at this little movie. I love that we get the peek into what's happening in the greater world and love the credits. I feel like the Allosaurus was too big, kind of like the Mosasaur and thick, especially in the snout. But I like the colors, at least as well as I can see them on my cell phone screen and much better than the Jurassic World colors. The Ceratopsian was a very cool design. It looked it looks just like the toys, and it has to be one of my favorite toys. Such a cool-looking dinosaur. Hell yeah, the Nasuda Ceratops is just, it's, you know, it's the bull Ceratopsian. But I don't know, I, I really appreciate, I mean, I guess the Allosaurus is one of the most iconic theropods, but I've always been kind of meh on Allosaurus. It's the Jurassic carnivore. It's it's the carnivore that lived at the same time as Stegosaurus and Dilophosaurus and all of our favorite sauropods, Brachiosaurus, Apatosaurus, Diplodocus. So it's interesting, you know, because we've always, you know, as far as theropods go, we're raptors, we're rexes. That's all, you know, Cretaceous carnivores. But 
So I guess I appreciate Allosaurus for that reason. But personally, the design in Jurassic World is kind of one of my least favorite designs of all the dinosaurs in any of the films. I would say the Allosaurus and the Dimorphodon are probably my well and flying reptile. Um, <laughs> but as far as like creatures in a Jurassic movie, I feel like the original Allosaurus and the Dimorphodon and all the Pteranodons other than the Lost World one are all my least favorite Jurassic designs. So I was kind of meh either way. But I, I and especially watching it in 4K and watching it in the theater, I really appreciate the Allosaurus a bit more. It's very like haunted looking for some reason i don't know but maybe that was just the the uh the uh fire extinguisher foam that was covering it but it just its face looks very haunted for some reason and spooky uh but the nasutoceratops i just love that it just feels like such a cool unique choice and i love that colin went with that as opposed to like say another triceratops or something like that so uh thanks someone uh kristen says i loved it made me more excited for jwt i think they did a great job with it only being eight minutes laura says i stopped watching the island on netflix so i could watch this and the main actress from the show was the mom in this i was very confused the credits were my favorite and this whole short is yet another reason another thing to add to my list of reasons why i'm scared to go camping my one issue is that it took place at night i guess it's easy way to get around a smaller budget but i found it quite hard to see i had to turn the brightness on my phone way up yeah i agree i mean um but i feel like this 4k everyone go rewatch it again after listening to this or just stop what you're doing and rewatch it now uh <laughs> or watch it before you listen to this uh because I feel like they brightened it up a bit. So, but let me know what you think. Um, Susan says, oh man, I needed a warning when the Allosaurus started trying to eat the baby dinosaur. That was seriously so stressful. But overall, I thought it was good. Uh, there were some fun moments. I love the girl got the crossbow shot in the end. Heck yeah. The end, cre- end credit sequences, the end credit sequences were really fun as well. And... It's so funny. I I don't know where I said it, but I feel like Colin really doesn't like baby ceratopsians because in Jurassic World, uh, the one of the pteranodons like lifts the baby trike and like drops it and this and, you know, the Sinoceratops gets gets attacked by the Carnotaurus and Fallen Kingdom. So it's like, man, the the these um, and the sick Triceratops in, in the original, it truly is uh, the Ceratopsians have it rough in the Jurassic universe. Um, Savannah, thank, thank you, Susan. Uh, Savannah says, I loved it. It was a strong Lost World vibes, especially with the baby Nasutoceratops and the RV tipping over. Great suspense and generally scary without some of the frills that I feel like Jurassic World has. Was also really happy to see an adult Allosaurus, one of my favorites ever since Walking with Dinosaurs. Big Al special. And the little cr- clips in the credits of the dinosaurs making chaos in everyday life. I could watch a whole movie of that. It was just so fun. Uh, I love those comments. And yeah, I mean, it's again there's been news saying that colin has confirmed a jurassic anthology of short films based off of that q a but again if you roll back the tape i think he's more of like hey guys if you really like this make some noise and we can do it but it's not going to happen unless you make some noise and i feel like the reaction at battle at big rock the reaction to to doing this announcement this q a and seeing battle at big rock on the big screen i really hope if we keep making noise that Battle Big Rock could be seen on the big screen in a theater near you uh, because it's, you know, it's it again. I'm, I'm of two minds of like, I'm glad that, like I said before, that we got to see it all together. But now that we've all seen it together, I'm like, no, I want to see it on the big screen. Uh, so 
maybe they'll play it before Jurassic World 3. Who knows? Uh, going over to Twitter, I said, I love, uh, from Genozoic Artist, I love Battle of Big Rock. Immediate reaction is, how have the dinosaurs survived humanity this long? My only guess is someone is defending them in the political arena. If this was Claire Deering, it would work with her aspirations from the evolution of Claire novel. And I would only argue... That there's wild animals in the wild all the time and nobody really does anything about it. And if you think about it, in Fallen Kingdom, the government wasn't going to spend money to save the dinosaurs. So they certainly be like, eh, it's not my problem. Like, I, 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 knowing our government and our political climate, our government is certainly not going to help us if they don't have to. Uh, and that's just me being, I don't know if that, I don't even know if that's me being cynical. I think that's just the reality. I don't, I don't think that if the dinosaurs, that when the dinosaurs escaped Lockwood's Manor, that they went out and rounded them up. I think they were like, well, you know, if it becomes a problem, we'll deal with it. That's pretty much, again, how, that's pretty much how our government deals with anything. It's not a problem until after something bad happens. So I don't think they would, I don't, I, I can totally believe because also, I, where I live in Los Angeles, I live by Griffith Park. Um, there's coyotes that live in my backyard. There's cougars slash mountain lions, whatever the proper name is, uh, P22, uh, hanging out in my backyard. And unless they become a threat to humans, they're just chilling alongside with me. And, you know, they should. I don't, I'm not worried about it until, uh, I mean, I'm not worried about it until I get eaten, I guess. But, um, I don't see why if it's especially like a, you know, Lockwood's Banner that's kind of far away from society or just camp or just camp camp websites, camping sites. uh, I don't see why the government would do anything about it. It's not until it eats a baby that uh, it probably would become a problem. And even then, probably not unless it damages something expensive that a rich person, unless it eats a rich person. Honestly, that's that's when the government will jump in and deal with it. Um, But you know, it still is. It's interesting, although not to totally dismiss. I don't mean to totally dismiss your point, but also, I mean, it's interesting that they said, you know, uh, that this is the first big encounter. So it's because you got to think that maybe one of these dinosaurs would be curious, like blue is like goes full raccoon and just like he's sniffing out of a garbage can or something like that. But maybe I'm be smirching blue at this point. So anyway, it's a lot of food for thought, though. I, you know, it'll be in- and And I think your point, too, is that like. It's that we want to know, like how to. We want to see these interactions. We want those anthology films. Um, and then CG uh, CJ Nightmare ninety five says, "I loved Battle Big Rock." So, uh, yeah, me too. And <laughs> uh, let's see, I have two more comments to check out before we move on to Dino Fest shenanigans. Um, oh, Liz Rose one thirty seven says, "I loved it. I want a movie that follows the little girl with the crossbow protecting her family from the biggest carnivores and taking none of their shit." Me too. And the last comment for Battle of Big Rock Thoughts um, is from Brenda. Again, she says, my favorite part were the clips in the end credits. It was so funny and exciting to get a glimpse of the interactions we may be seeing in JW3. It got me thinking about what other kinds of scenarios with dinosaurs and humans would be fun to see as well. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, let me know what you're thinking. What do you want to see? I, I want to see like an influencer kind of situation. <laughs> you know, and, and not to like and not as a critique of the influencer thing, but more of just like, cause you know, it's just, I think that's a little tired, but, uh, more of just the idea of people interacting, people getting close, being curious, being too curious, being too, getting too close for their own good, things like that, or just kind of 
more moments of beauty and awe. I mean, the Parasaurolophus scene in the end credits was great because it's just, oh, there it is swimming. You know, people are coexisting. I, I think that's the part that I want to see. I want to see them coexist. Like, sure, it's easy to be like, yo, what up? Check out my subscribe. Like, you know, and it's just like, a you know, a YouTuber gets eaten by a dinosaur. Like, I want to see that too. And that's fun. But I also want to see a little something more interesting, uh, you know, and, and more subtle and more complicated. I think, you know, whether it is like seeing a dinosaur rummaging through your trash and just deciding to watch and not do anything, stuff like that. I don't know. I, I want to see it and it's all of its complicated glory. Uh, so yeah. Uh, thank you everyone for sharing your thoughts at battle at big rock. Again, I strongly urge you to go check out this 4k version because I'm, I don't know. I feel insane, but I also think that there is changes. The end credits are definitely different, though. That's for sure. Because there's that glorious little... Uh, that's me. That's how I sound on the guitar. There's a trombone cover. Anyway, let's take a quick break before we get into DinoFest LA 2019 at the Natural History Museum. Now, DinoFest has been around for a few years in Los Angeles at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles, and every year it's growing. It's, you know, thousands of people not only go and check out the dinosaur exhibits that are already there, but they'll have speakers, they're having films play, like I think this year was Jurassic Park Land Before Time and the Good Dinosaur. They'll have vendors out, different uh, organizations and stuff sharing their knowledge about dinosaurs, sharing dinosaur fossils for kids to touch and play with. I'm assuming assuming it's safe for them to touch and play with as well as panels. And so it was super exciting uh, because I've worked with the museum a little bit. Uh, I did a whole preview and um, and, uh, like opening kind of comments on the new Antarctic dinosaurs exhibit that is still going on now. And so I was incredibly, incredibly honored that they asked me to speak at this year's event. And I did a panel with Dr. Shana Montaneri, uh, about dinosaurs and social media, but there was so many other great talks as well. Uh, Dr. Bolar Minjin, she was super awesome. And she basically, she's a paleontologist who works out of Mongolia and the stories are wild that come out of Mongolia because there's also this horrible illegal fossil trade and stuff. And she is a, a Dr. Bolar Minjin is a goddamn hero. So, um, I'll put links to her work and stuff like that. So you could check it out. But, um, also, Dr. Luis Chiappi, 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 I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. Um, and also Dr. Nathan Smith, who, who hosted the whole thing and, and, and did the Antarctic dinosaurs exhibit. Uh, he was a big part of that weekend as well. And Julie Grunberg, who is also my personal hero because she manages like the frickin' camps and stuff at McMurdo. And it's just, it's my dream to go to Antarctica. So to get to talk to Julie about her experiences, just like managing the base and the camps, uh, she's, she was responsible for setting up the whole camp and organizing it for Dr. Nathan Smith's trip to go dig up the fossils like Crelophosaurus in Antarctica. So I just was like picking her brain, just being like, Ah, like how do you eat what what do you sleep what do you do for entertainment what's going on what's life like in antarctica oh it's my dream to go there someday it's still 
it's still one of the big like bucket list things that I haven't done yet. And I hope to go there someday. So if you've got a connection, uh, if you've got any Antarctica connections, let me know. Um, and yeah, so everyone's talks were incredible. Again, Dr. Shana did a whole, she really, she really dove into the nuts and bolts of how paleontologists share information and in ways that they can kind of connect with the the common man about science. I mean, it's I work on ologies and that's really what Allie's goal is. And so Dr. Shana kind of did kind of a nuts and bolts way of how you can kind of responsibly share information and discoveries and make it exciting and fun, add gifts, make memes, all that good, every, you know, all that good stuff. So I didn't, we did, we did basically did the same panel both days, but you know, slightly, slight differences. Um, and I'm not going to play all of her panel or all of my panel just because they're mostly visual because we were just sharing, you know, showing slides and stuff and her says a lot of facts and everything. So, um, I'm, I don't need to play the audio for that. Just know that it was a great time. And I just mostly me was just like, Oh, how do I, but, but, but no, it was a lot of fun. And, um, I really appreciate everyone who came out and everyone who supported, uh, uh, supported me for, for doing it. It was just, I mean, I don't, it's just, I'm just very overwhelmed at the idea that I, uh, that I got to talk about dinosaurs at Dino Fest. So, and talk about this podcast and the, the, why I'm playing the Q and A is because I think that was the last thing of the weekend that I did. And the audience had really great questions. And really, I feel like what Dr. Shannon and I really tapped into was just the ways that you can be kind of responsible because we live in such an age of misinformation, fake news, um, that there are ways that we as citizens can help keep the facts facts and get excited about those facts, get excited about discoveries. Dinosaurs are the way that we stay tapped into our, um, you know, childhood imagination, the way that we kind of stay, uh, we stay innocent that we, um, you know, care about what's going on in our world and climate change and everything else. And I think the ways in which paleontologists communicate with us and the way that we uphold their values and the ways that they communicate, I think it's just really important for that conversation to happen. And I think the Q and a, I think everyone's questions were really kind of a revolving around that sharing information, re sharing information responsibly, making sure you're getting your sources right and, and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to play it right now and I'll join you at the end. Hi, everyone. So we're going to have an opportunity to ask any questions to our two speakers. Oh, so go ahead and raise your hand. I'll come over to you and hand you the microphone so that you can ask and we can all hear. Don't be shy. Yeah. Hi, uh, when you're covering something that's been popular in the news, like some new big dinosaur discovery, how do you make sure you're not covering it in the same way as every other outlet? That do you think about that a lot? Yes, and that's when you work in science journalism is what your editor wants you to be thinking about all the time too. Like why, is, why would this piece be different? Because if the, science journalism is so interesting because a story comes out, a new paper comes out and you all are forced to cover it at the exact same time. It's just the way the publishing world works. So you do want your story to be different. Um, for me, I always, and, and this is why it's great to have scientists who are also involved in journalism, because I like to, instead of just reading a press release, I like to read the actual paper that the scientists wrote, which I'm not saying other journalists don't do this, but sometimes they don't have time because you have your deadlines, you know, 45 minutes, 
or they don't really, they don't have the background to understand it as well. So I don't want to just keep, you know, re rehashing something. And maybe there's something in the paper that's actually more, what could be more interesting or another interesting point about the study or raise new questions. Um, I also like to try to contact different experts. You know, sometimes the same two people get tapped as the outside expert in every single story. Don't do that um, because, you know, you're going to get the same opinion over and over and over again. But, you know, sometimes maybe, you know, you do get a similar sounding story, but I think there's a lot of creative ways that this can be done. And actually, through Twitter, I follow so many scientists and I, I try to look when a new paper comes out. If I see one, say, oh, I don't know if this is quite right, um, I'll look into that and see, I'll talk to them and say, maybe they have a point and maybe I can bring that up as a outside comment in a story about a new dinosaur story. Like, you know, we were all saying that, you know, this, it was the mass was estimated this way. Maybe that's not the best way to estimate the mass of a dinosaur and maybe other people have other ideas how to do it and that should be mentioned and like give the reader a little bit of an extra thing, what I write is so it's not the same as, as everybody else, I would hope. <laughs> To add to that, because because I'm not a paleontologist, I think, uh, but because I have an audience that has a trust in what I say, I think it's up to me to do my due diligence to actually either go right to the source or to go to people that I trust, and to not just sort of say, here's a here's an interesting fact, go sit with it, but to allow people to have the the ability to, I mean, it's even just little things of like, if I'm talking about a story, I'm citing my sources, I'm not just saying, hey, we found a new bone that makes dinosaurs like you know, turn green or whatever. I don't know, but um, it's like having having those things accessible. It's it's there's so many. It, sometimes these articles get so far removed from reality that you're like, it, it's all made up. So I think you know, as a as a podcaster and as somebody who's sharing this stuff, I think it's really just going to the people that I trust and kind of double checking too. It's like reading multiple articles and things like that. So it's kind of just that way of like doing your, your due diligence before you start talking about something. And again, finding those angles like, oh, what does, this, what does this paleontologist have to say about it? What does this other paleontologist have to say? And again, giving the accessibility so that you're not just saying something and expecting your audience to just take you at face value. It's like, no, here's the article, read it for yourself. Oh, do you actually want to read the journal? Well, here's a way to read the actual journal of the study. Because sometimes those journal studies like aren't necessarily accessible to the public, so it's like I'm having to read somebody else's reporting of the journal. So it, it gets a bit tricky, but I think as long as you're kind of being transparent about your sources and, and where you're finding it from and giving, uh, empowering like people to go look it up for themselves, I feel like you at least can be a little bit more comfortable that you're not just spreading, you know, things that aren't true. <laughs> I was just going to say this happened re kind of recently with, you know, there was a story in the New Yorker about the day the dinosaurs died and it was exclusive to that publication. And then a lot of paleontologists said, oh, um, I, you know, I would have a different opinion about this. So a lot of the articles that were written after were about the different opinion, which I think is great. I mean, I think, you know, there's different methods of storytelling and different methods of looking at the data and interviewing. And, you know, I, I like when the process works like that because you really do get a true diversity of what scientists think. Hello. <laughs> um, so with a lot of um, news coming out and a lot of different information that you're receiving, do you ever find it difficult to kind of like break it down in like a way that the general public can understand? And how would you recommend going about that and, you know, still giving the correct information and not like devaluing the information that you're receiving? 
Yes. This is, I mean, that, that's one of the eternal difficulties of being a science journalist and working with complicated topics like that is because you, not everybody is start, starting at the same level. I mean, if you're talking about current events, like most people kind of know generally what's going on and can quickly find out. But, you know, you've got 30 years of history in a field that you can't like bring, it's hard to bring people up to speed. So I, I mean, and sometimes you're only given, you know, four or 500 words to describe it to someone. And I think that's the hard part is that you can't cover everything. And sometimes you may just have to pick something out of a paper that is easily understandable in a popular context. Um, and I always ask scientists for analogies and they have a way that they like to describe it or think about it or how would they describe it to, you know, maybe like their children <laughs> um, if they had to describe it and like what would they say and how would they even begin to do that and that sort of helps me, not like everyone's children, but it begins, it helps me figure out how to say it because I, you know, I made up a science background but there's a lot of fields I don't under, I don't know about. I mean, I haven't spent, you know, I didn't spend 10 years researching particle physics and sometimes I have to write about it. So, you know, I really... <laughs> I really need someone to, to explain it to me. Um, and then, you know, maybe you're picking out one bit of a story to, to cover in the news, and maybe there's more. And maybe, you know, I guess all of us wish we then had time to then take the whole story and write like a very long, beautiful feature and have it published in The New Yorker. Um, that these days doesn't happen as much just because of, you know, there's not that many science journalists, and so they're busy and then have a lot of time for doing super fun, long projects. But, you know, there's, there are people who are making a, a, you know, a niche for this as their job, writing um, longer explanations about complicated science and doing it really nicely. So I'm glad that it seems like, to me, people are caring about it more, which is cool. Do you find that um, because of Twitter and things like that, do you find that you're actually commenting on other things that maybe you either aren't writing about or like you're interested in? Do you find that like you're like, oh, this cool article that that's another journalist wrote and then you're like, and if you're not actually like commissioned in an article, but do you feel like you can chime in as well and get your opinion in? Yeah, I mean, some I love giving my opinion um, about things if I know about them. So yeah, it's a good way to, you know, if I see an article a friend or a colleague wrote and I'll say, I can retweet it and say, this is really interesting and then maybe like add a personal tidbit, which is cool because there's a lot of journalists and scientists are doing a lot of like work for free on Twitter of explaining things really well. And, and if, I always tell people, you know, follow, if there's a reporter you like and you, you know, read an article and you keep noticing, oh, the same person wrote it, I really enjoy their writing. If you follow them, a lot of the times they uh, will describe to you further how they reported it, what else they learned. Because as I said, you get word limits in an article and you could have probably written 5,000 words about sea urchins, but you only had 1,200. So do you want, if you want to know more, the person will be gladly sharing more information because you know I interviewed uh, someone at the Botanical Garden in Phoenix about taking care of cactuses the other day and we talked for an hour and a half and I had only had you know 900 words straight about it I could have written like five different stories um, you know so if I'm gonna tell you about that reporting process of all the other cool things he told me you know I could I you know mention them and show photo and then sometimes show photos and like something we did so there's a lot of great ways you can interact with things you're not actually even seeing in a publication or a blog post beyond on social media that way yeah just a one little ad because i'm in, in a way it's like my podcast part of it is you know the people telling their own stories and hearing from people and interviewing people about what they do but then part of it's being like an aggregate and so again it's this idea of like giving access so that if you want to find out more because again you can't cover everything i can't share every dinosaur news that happened this month but also i think it's 
what's been nice about social media and online and stuff, I can hear feedback directly. And it's like, people are like, oh no, I want to hear more dinosaur news or I want to hear more about, you know, what's going on with dinosaur toys or whatever. And so I think it's been helpful to be responsive, not necessarily being like, accept all criticism or all praise, but just to be like, to kind of get a temperature of what people are into. And it's like, oh, that's cool. And you know, and it's, and then finding that balance of like what I'm interested in and what my audience is interested in. And I think social media is nice at least to kind of dip your toe in for a minute and be like, yeah. Ooh, what are people thinking? Okay, no, I need to get out of the pool before my toes get wrinkly. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, how do you feel about the role of pop culture being used as a springboard for a scientific discussion? Like I think a lot about Neil deGrasse Tyson's Twitter and how he'll point out like the star patterns in the sky of Titanic or something. <laughs> and it's always kind of funny because on one hand it's like, you know, like who cares about the stars in Titanic? But on the other hand, like it is an interesting like standpoint, like it brings a conversation. Like, how do you feel about that? Well, I, I would just want to ask you, I was going to say when you're watching movies, you know, Jurassic Park, Day After Tomorrow, as, as somebody who's a scientist, are you, are you sort of like, well, it's just a movie, so it doesn't matter. Or is it more of like, they need to get this correct because they could be spreading misinformation. Mm. What's that balance? Yeah. I'm, Tap off your question. Yeah, no, it was a good question. I talk about this all the time. Actually, my friends and I had a, sh a limited run podcast that's on hiatus uh, about watching climate change movies and describing the science behind them. Because I, because I, re so I really do think it's called Anthropocinema. There's three episodes. That's a great name. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I think they're all gold. <laughs> it's just an hour of us ranting about the day after tomorrow and other some other films. Uh, Geostorm also, but I so yeah. So talking about like the day after tomorrow, I I think it's interesting because to some people it is just a movie and it seems like oh this would never happen. And I think it's interesting to pick out what about that is accurate. But then you know I mean I've spent most of my life as many paleontologists have of like when people ask like do dinosaurs have feathers in Jurassic Park they don't and you kind of just like why I wish you sort of put feathers on it so I didn't have to answer the same question over and over again but but whatever because then I can have a good conversation about what we knew then about dinosaurs having feathers what we know now how that's changed all the discoveries we've made so I think you know anything that provides a jumping off point for more education um, I'm a fan of and you know I mean the amount of money and that we get to spend on you know making exhibits or doing field work is just like a teeny fraction of what a movie budget is so more people are going to see a movie than listen you know read my article so if that lets them want to talk about it more then i i like it and plus you know it gives i think it gives you probably gives you some fodder on podcasts of like ways to relate to people i would well, assume yeah well i mean it's also again about not stifling conversation because i think it's not very helpful if you're like oh shut up it's just a movie it doesn't matter because i think if you think about the original Jurassic park as one example that was a movie that really encouraged uh, you know, really encourage people to explore and to, you know, to check out. So to say that it doesn't matter, it feels like that's kind of dismissive. And so I think it really is, you know, again, it's that finding that balance between like, I mean, at least if it allows you to go read articles and go learn and stuff, I think ultimately that's what's important. And hopefully, again, you know, we can discern between the movies that are like damaging, that are like climate change is caused by elves, you know, versus like, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, well, in 1993, they were just starting to realize that maybe feathers were there. So, but they weren't confident in including, you know, so it's, it's kind of like just thinking about which, you know, again, Dilophosaurus never had a frill like that or probably didn't spit venom and, you know, and so it, it's like acknowledging that, but also being, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it varies because some stuff, I remember um, my friend's dad 
was watching Jurassic, she told me the story of her dad watching Jurassic Park back in the day. And I think Alan Grant says something about cellular mitosis, which I guess is redundant. And her dad was like, I can't watch this movie. I'm over it. Like to turn the movie off was like, I can't, everything else is, you know, fake after that. But I think there's like a, a balance, but I think, I mean, I think it's, I think you can't be dismissive to it either. I think like you're saying, entertainment has the power to reach sometimes a much wider audience, unfortunately, than, than other, you know, things. So I think you should, they should, people should be mindful. I mean, sometimes movies will make mistakes that aren't, or not mistakes, but they'll like make creative choices that are maybe just, they're not thinking about it. And they're like, oh, it's easier if I just do this. And it's like, well, no, if you literally took five seconds, you could make this thing more accurate and you wouldn't, like recently, um, I don't know if anybody saw the, there was a Jurassic World short that just came out called Battle of Big Rock. And, um, I, and you can correct me on the science here, but like, I guess a lot of the theropods arms in Jurassic Park have been a certain way that's actually like incorrect. Mm -hmm. And this short like corrected it to be the, the right way. And I saw a bunch of people on Twitter who were like paleontolog uh, paleontologists and dinosaur fans. They're like, oh my God, pronated for it. You know, this thing is yeah. like, they did it correct for the first time in the history of this entire franchise. So I think that's stuff to celebrate. You know, it's, it's not just being nitpicky for nitpicky's sake. It's like exciting when I think, I feel like a lot of scientists get excited when like something is done correctly in a movie because you're so used to things getting wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's definitely true. But in, I, I, just another way that it has opened up communication was that I was invited to perform with a, a theatrical group that reenacts movies in New York City as a drinking game. And they did Jurassic Park. And for the first time, they invited someone else to sit on stage, which was myself, and blow a whistle every time I wanted to say something about the science of the movie. That's so cool. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and it was really cool. And it was probably the only way I would have gotten 150 you know drunk people on a Friday night to listen to me but I had so many people like be like oh I had, like their faces were like oh I had no idea you know and I didn't just say oh this is wrong this is wrong I actually said you know this is this is accurate like this would be right like this isn't wrong it may seem wrong to you but it's not so you know I I now I've memorized the script of Jurassic Park also because of that because I ran through it three times so you know so but that was so cool because it was like I had this huge audience of people who if there was a advertised a talk on at 9 p.m. on Friday about learn dinosaur facts. Like, I don't think that many people would have come. Maybe some, but probably not. Usually, these people would have. They yeah, would have. Yeah, maybe you guys would have come. But you know, there's um, just to, the power of like getting people. If you combine like two things, like movies and dinosaurs, or alcohol and dinosaurs, people are ready to go. <laughs> Let's give one more round of applause to our speakers. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I really appreciate all the support I've been getting over the last couple months, even though it's been insane. And thank you, everyone, who came out to DinoFest. Thank you to Brenna, of course, and Roxy and Nick. And thank you to my fellow speakers, Dr. Luis Chiappi, at Luis Chiappi on Instagram, Dr. Bolar Minjin, Dr. Nathan Smith, Dr. Shana Montaneri, at Dr. Shana, and Julie Grunberg. And thank you again to the incredible museum staff for their tireless work over the weekend. Diana, Marisol, Laurel, Wes, Manny, and everyone else. Uh, I really hope I get to do it again next year. And if you guys have a DinoFest or, or Natural History Mu Museum days in your cities, I really want to hear about it. Getting to go and explore all the Natural History Museums in uh, every city I go to has been such a special treat that I didn't think I would have as an adult. So I'm really thankful that. And I, and I have seen people, you know, we did the meetup last year in Chicago. I'm thinking about doing it again. Uh, let me know if you're interested. Uh, but yeah, it's just, I think doing Down a Fest over the weekend really helped me. It helped me appreciate 
all of you and doing this podcast and just making me want it to, again, keep making it bigger and better. And I appreciate everyone being here with me during this rocky time where I'm still trying to put the bones back together in the right way. Uh, Brenna had a great tweet about the biggest gamblers are people who uh, people who buy puzzles at thrift stores are the biggest gamblers. And so I appreciate all of you, uh, you know, buying my puzzle pieces at the thrift store. I don't know. Anyway, that metaphor ran away with itself. But thank you everyone again for listening. Hey, I just wanted to drop this in because I realized I forgot to talk about it. But getting the Brachiosaurus from Target. So that was such an exciting Feeling, and I have to give all the props to Brenna, aka Bonnie Puns, aka Beaksels, because it was uh, random October 1st, and I believe it was Collect Jurassic was reporting that brachiosaurs were being snapped up before the official start date. And she was like, Oh, like, I'll go to Target, I'll look, do you want to come? And I was just like, oh, I'm tired, I don't feel like it. And then I went, and then we were looking for it, and we didn't see it. So then Brenna asked uh, a woman, in the back and turns out that that target worker uh, is a murderino named Carla and she's a very talented puppeteer uh, who works with uh, Deanna Rooney and Jonah Ray so in, on Mystery Science Theater 3000 but she uh, was a very delightful uh, person and got us two Brachiosauruses and it's the most gorgeous toy ever Okay, back to the episode. I've already put out the call for the October question because I'm going to be doing some special Halloween episodes, plural. Um, And I want to celebrate the spookiest, ookiest aspects of Jurassic Park. So I want to know what your favorite scariest moments are from Jurassic Park, Lost World, Jurassic Park 3, Jurassic World, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, Battle at Big Rock. Let me know by commenting... You know, in the social post, call 323-688-6969 or email cjurassicright at gmail.com. Yeah, it's Halloween is the best time of year. And yeah, I'm so excited for this. And I have to think of my costume, but maybe it'll, it'll be dra- I'm I'm going to find a way to make something Jurassic Park related. I did last year. Uh uh, Margarita Man, um, Jimmy Buffett. Uh, so let me know what your Halloween costumes, if you're dressing up as Jurassic, you know, some somebody from Jurassic Park. Uh, personally, maybe I'll go as the little girl uh, who was chased by compies at the end of Battle at Big Rock. So let's, let's see if I can get that together in time. Anyway, it's been a lot of fun. I'm glad I got to talk to you all again uh, sooner than, sooner than later. And I'll be back very soon. So until next week, life it's a baby now you can also interact with me in the show by following me on twitter at Stephen Ray Morris and following SJR Pod on Twitter, See Jurassic Ride on Instagram, See Jurassic Ride on Facebook, or you can send me an email at seejurassicride at gmail.com. Not only am I looking forward to talking to people about their Jurassic Park experiences and hearing yours, but I also am going to be sharing ephemera from my childhood, and oh god, I'm going to share the fan fiction uh, on there as well, and pictures and toys and everything. It's going to be great. And I wanted to thank Caitlin Thompson and Tim Ruggery at ACAST, Molly McAleer, Heather Mason, Stephanie Cook, Sarah Iyer, and you. See Jurassic Right is an ACAST podcast. Check out the show on their mobile app. And thank you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>